Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control. There's one thing you can control, and that's shaving. Our sponsors are Manscaped are here to remind you to do so. Manscaped is here to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. Chaz, have you had any funny manscaping experiences? Okay, so here you go, Derek Riley. I used to only ever say, shave your face, right? Don't yeah, yeah. shave anything but your face because it is totally brilliant to shave your face before you razor shave with Manscaped. But I've realized women don't like chest hair either. And so I've gone south. I have gone to the chest and it's totally easy. And I mean, do you shave your chest? I, you do. I, I, I think men who shave the chest are a half men chest. I don't shave all of it. I just shave the top part that comes up to my neck. So it's like an extension of my face down, right? I leave the chest, I suppose. I misspoke. But I shave the top third, the neck portion of my chest. That's ghastly. Yeah, you get that thing, you get a little regrowth. And you see the regrowth on men. And you get, God, you actually shave the hair on your uh, your chest and your neck. I mean, neck. But I ain't, I going, I ain't going razor down there. So I'm just, I'm just cutting the weird fluff that grows up over my V-neck. That's it. Oh, yes, yeah, fair enough. But you can probably just trim that with scissors. It's probably a more effective experience. Using Are you tools. kidding me? The Manscaped tool makes it like I don't even have to think about it. I just do it in seconds, and I'm gold. <laughs> well, in fact, listeners to the show will get 20% off and free shop- shipping with the code uh, DIRTYWATER at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And you use the code Dirty Water. Please use Dirty Water because this whole thing will be pointless unless you use Dirty Water. So if you're going to do it, use Dirty Water, please. Uh, it's time to grab 2020 by the horns <clears throat> and shave. Take your grooming game to the next level. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action of bet online. Chaz, have you been betting? I haven't been betting yet, but that's only because it's so frustrating to bet here where I am so happy for easy online betting because I've always got an instinct that's always wrong. What would you be laying your money on? Oh, right now, I'd go hard on Joe Biden, to be honest. Do they bet politics or no? I don't know. I think so, yeah. You can bet Biden. I think he's a uh, probably a one and a half to one semi-favorite. I mean, I guess I wouldn't bet him. But, I'd bet uh, on Joe Biden fucking dying, dying in, uh, in the Oval Office. I bet. Uh, I bet. I mean, yeah. Trump feels to me like he's he's cooked. This is not going to be a good ad talking about how Trump is cooked. <laughs> but how good is Kamala Harris? She's beautiful. I mean, the, the, except now she's offline. She's been derailed by the COVID. Oh, she, I thought oh, an assistant got uh, got COVID. Huh? Yeah, but they're really taking her offline purposefully to show how much more responsible they are. Uh, how much she cares. Yep. And how much better she looks in Timberland boots than uh, Melania Trump, huh? I mean, my goodness. <laughs> okay, so from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. You can just spend all your money, lose, lose everything you got, lose your wife's money, lose everyone's money. Okay, so head to betonline.ag to get today. AG, I guess, is Antigua. Isn't that amazing? Sweet. That's where I want to be betting. Sure, I want to go to Antigua. So head to BetOnline Antigua today. Uh, BetOnline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's BetOnline.ag for Antigua 
and sign up today. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. I'm Derek Riley, and welcome to Dirty Water, where stentorian force and a bullying wall slamming style of address is preferred over careful and intelligent colloquy. Today's guest is a former world champion surfer famous now for his oratorical Gymkhana's on WSL broadcasts and for his annual week-long junior events, less so for his former careers as a butterfly collector and anarchist. Although warmed slightly by age, for he's the sort of man who sleeps little, receives visitors at his sunset beach house in carpet slippers, and is happy to dine simply on goat's cheese, he will occasionally open up a front if he feels his electrons shuddering. Today's guest, Mr. Barton Lynch. Hey, Derek. How are you, mate? Why? Wow, so you're in uh, you're in Hawaii. What looks of it? Yeah. Oh, we well we uh, long we we got here in October last year. Yeah. Oh, fuck. And we were leaving. We went to Japan at the end of January, just for two weeks to renew our visa after three months. And then we came back on the 30th of January and we were meant to leave end of March and the flight got cancelled and the visa we had went till April. So we booked one at the end of April. That got cancelled. Then we were in a situation where we were applying month by month for stays of departure and we got May, June, July, August, September. And then they said, nah, you're done, mate. You're up. You've got to go. And in that, in that means, we had to be out by September 25th, but in the meantime, I applied for an O-1 visa and have been going through that process for the last five, six months, and that came through just when they booted us out, if you know oh, what I mean. Yeah, so yeah. Time, it was kind of good because we had to leave and go to an embassy somewhere. Yeah. But not many countries will let Americans in, or not many countries are open, and then not many countries will let you in if you've been in America, and then not many countries will America let you back in from. <laughs> so, there was there was Ecuador, Egypt, Cuba were our three options, and we were going to Ecuador, and I was talking to Ecuador, and then the the Mexico City thing just popped up out of the blue that you could go there. So we 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 left here, not even with an appointment, not knowing, just knowing that we'd been approved for the visa, but we had to get seen and get the visa put in the passport, and but and then get back here before winter started. You know what I mean? It was kind of the kind of the objective and and so yeah the mission was successful and we got the visas and it was a two and a half week trip all up which wasn't too bad i suppose could have been anything and it was kind of interesting to venture out into the covid world and uh anyway so you you still have your house at sunset yeah that's where i am now i'm just sitting out in the uh out in the little on the side here, family are inside. We're in quarantine, mate. I'm in quarantine oh, for how long? Two weeks. Well, fourteen days of freaking hell. So, the whole things have been a, and you know, it's there's there's some very judgmental people out there, and I've been spending my life keeping my opinions to myself since I was a young man because I know that what I believe is very unpopular generally, and the appetite for of people to actually understand and comprehend something outside of what they think is not very large. You know, they're very freaking judge. And, and I've never seen such a self-righteous, judgmental humanity as the one we're living with now. So how did you deal with it internally and intellectually? You know, and, and I suppose 
it's a very fine line, the conversation, you know, because people aren't very accepting of other people's opinions at this point in time. And when you're scared and threatened, you are the least um, tolerant <laughs> of stuff outside of your safety zone, you know. And like they say, it's no, 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 you know, anyway, it's a long, it's a, it's a thing. And for me, I, what I've valued my whole life is freedom. That's why I do what I do is to wake up and have the right to choose. The right to choose where I go, what I eat, you know, like that's and at the same time I've recognized in my life that there's not a lot of not a lot of tolerance or open mindedness, um, generally speaking, to thoughts outside of what they believe, you know, because they believe it. That's their truth and I respect everyone's truth, you know. And I have my own truth. But I actually understand that people are not very accepting of my truth. My truth's a little bit, that's a little harsh for the fair, fairy tales that people are, are sort of grown up accepting. Anyway, let's not get too deep, shall we? But, but where, did, where does that come from? Because, uh, you know, I know when you were younger, you were a, you know, a teenage anarchist and a butterfly collector. <laughs> so, um, you know, was, were your mum and dad, were they, were they intellectuals? Your dad was a cop, wasn't he? My dad was a policeman um, and my mum was, the, you know, house mum and my dad worked a few jobs. Um, he, he also mowed lawns and was involved with Wild Beach Surf Club, was club captain and so he, you know, he and the boys would hang down there and they had, you know, life, was pretty, life was pretty simple back then, honestly, you know, and I, I, those Wild Beach days were, they were the days of innocence in a lot of ways, you know, because... You know, you felt safe. Um, we lived at Whale Beach, between Whale Beach and Palm Beach, and you could run around on the streets and ride your bikes and just be rat bag kids and go climbing down. the. We used to climb, go down the rock shelf below at the terrace there. We lived right above the terrace. Yeah. And we used to climb down there and climb through the caves and hang on the rocks and find fossils. And, you know, you were outdoors a lot. And, um, and then so that was... They were really, that was good living back then, you know, northern beaches, 60s, you know, 60s and the 70s, early early 70s. And and then when my dad passed away, that was kind of like a, um, that was a trip into, um, the innocence was over. <laughs> when we got to Mossman and mum moved us away from Wild Beach, obviously when you leave something without confronting it, it's kind of, you've got to be around stuff to confront it, you know, and it's like, you know, I say, it's like going to Byron Bay. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, it was, you know, we kind of left and, and then I was, you know, went to school, didn't know anyone. And from that day, from that moving there, that was when, that was when my learning started. <laughs> you know, How old were you, nine or ten? Eleven. Eleven, right. Eleven yeah. went that yeah, 74. Um yeah, and so away we, you know, that's that's when I started learning, and that's when I, you know, when I look back at that period of my life, that may there's parts that I'm not very proud of, um, in the ways and means I went about maintaining my independence and not burdening my mother with my existence, so she could put her energy into, into my into my two brothers, you know. Yeah. Um, that was kind of, I remember the morning I was lying in bed and I remember hearing my mum cry out in the living room and it was, they were tears that, um, or the crying was, it wasn't a joke. You know what I mean? It wasn't, 
and you knew things weren't going to be the same again when you were lying in bed. And I just went, oh, I don't know if I can get up and face that right now. I just kind of rolled over for another another bit of shut-eye. <laughs> Maybe we'll wake up and be different in half up. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, um, and so that, that when I went outside and they said, you're the man of the house now, you know. Um, Jesus. And that, that was, I didn't know what to make of that. So I just thought that my, my immediate thing was, is I've got to be independent. My mum can't have to worry about her life. And, um, and I um, need to look after myself. <laughs> we got on with some stuff, you know what I mean? And that was kind of how I responded to that situation. And back then there's no counselling. There's no seeing people about anything. The police never came over and sent. So you imagine what happens now. You know what I mean? In the world that we live in now and the, the therapies and the, you know, the whole thing that would go on. Now, back then, nothing happened. No one came. You just on your own, mate. Deal with it. You know, get on with life. And so my godfather said to me that morning, he said, what do you want to do? Um, is there anything I can do for you? So I want to go for a surf. And he took me down to Kitties and I paddled out and I rode a few and I cried and I rode a few and I cried and I <laughs> rode a few and I cried. And that was, it was there for me it's always been there for me, you know, in that sense. And that's kind of, that's, it's been my, my haven my whole life. That's where I go. That's where, you know. So to be here, after, it's right there. It's just right there, mate. And, and you're in the back outside. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's a, you know, you've just got to, in the, in, in the stark contrast of life, um, a good place to be quarantined if you had to do it. I mean, look, yeah, look at you now, and you're surrounded by palm trees and beautiful patch of grass and this beautiful weatherboard house and uh, a backyard sunset that, you know, some people stuck in um, two star hotels. Mate, that's what I keep telling the sun. All of ours are first, first class problems, boy. How I, don't like, I don't like the bagels, first class problem, mate. <laughs> and, and Mexico City was a fantastic experience in that for him, too to see people, kids, just sitting on the side of the road begging and he's complaining about getting up and walking 100 metres to eat some wonderful meal at a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> so we, I, I love Mexico, actually, you know, and that's, I suppose, you just got to, you got to be, you've got to make an art form of turning negatives into positive. Yeah. That's the, but, that's life. What's, what's, your, what's your family situation now? Because you've got an older daughter, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a daughter, Tamarin, who will be here in Hawaii on the 15th. She gets here a couple of days' time. She gets here. Um, and then I've got a six-year-old son, Lion, who's inside here. You know, nuts because he can't see his friends and he can't, you know, he's back home, back where he feels like home. You know, he spent more time here than anywhere else in the world. Um and he can't even go out to see him. He can't play with him. He's stuck inside with his parents. Go, this is crazy stuff. <laughs> it's a memory card where a hazmat suit and go around like John Travolta and the boy in the bubble. I saw it. Well, I saw him out there at the airports, mate. Oh, really? Yeah, there's some, you know, there's some sincere fear out there. Um, you know, and it, it makes me question myself because I always go to the you know, just naturally to the conspiracy side of things. And it's what my mind most easily understands. And this, I have to kind of, the whole thing has to, you have to keep yourself in check and your own, ask yourself a few questions about your um, 
consistency of the place you go to in assessing a situation. <laughs> but you know what? You've always been a suspicious of authority. Yeah, and I, I to say the least, I have. That's right. And I always had a, a sense of, I don't know, it's, you know, I don't want to get too deep in things. And, you know, it's one of the things that doing the Blast Off Video Challenge and being around so many kids and around the grommets and that energy right, and it's all about the coaching and all of this good vibes, then you come out and turn the telly on and go, oh, no, I forgot. Chaotic <laughs> out there. People are losing their businesses. People are – people, mums and dads who have worked their life to create some independence, create their form of freedom, their yeah. opportunity to feed their family and create a life for themselves, being taken over over this situation. And, I, you know, I understand people are dying and people die, and that's what – but, you know, it's, it's one of those realities of life is that that's the only thing I know for sure. So I feel like there's, you know, I feel really, I feel sorry for people who are in that situation who are having to, and people who are sick and all of that stuff too, of course. But for those people whose lives are being changed permanently outside of their control. So surely, right, for a period of lockdown, Anything of a financial consequence should be null and void, right? There should be no no responsibility of anyone to pay anyone for anything in the periods of lockdown, and all of our financial responsibilities should be over, should be just let go. Instead of giving us money that creates debt that enslaves us to the rest of our future, perhaps we just forget about all the money. And no one owes anyone anything for a little period of time until you say we can come out, if that's the way it is. You know, I just don't – I can't buy people losing their lives and being told to and forced to in some forms in like a police state fashion. That's a hard thing for <laughs> this whole freedom seeker to deal with, I'll tell you. Yeah, it's, a, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild. And people, a lot of people are unaware that they're actually going to die one day. And that's the um, underlying thing. A lot of people don't don't actually accept the fact that we are mortal. I mean, no one lives forever. And 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 the features and the characteristics of similarity between the human and the animal are a little too obvious for me to ignore. You know, in what way? Well, I just see myself of 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 animal evolution. I see myself as as a you know as a cog in the line of forever forever you know in terms of it's a long time mate and things have been around for billions of years billions and billions of years and there's there's i just see myself as a as a part of that evolution and that's my anchor to that's my anchor to my perception of the rest of the world around me is that is that way i look at myself i don't see myself as better than I don't see myself as special. I just see myself as just another little living organism on the face of the planet that one day won't be. And, you know, it's so it's it's, it's yeah, it's, a, it's such an opportunity. It's such a fantastic opportunity, life itself, mate. You know, I look at it like that and just go, wow, 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 a moment in time where things are that good that we get a run. You know, and oh, it's, it's so good to have a fucking run on the paddock, isn't it? It's so good to have a run, mate. And I'm, I'm, I'm essentially not scared. And I spend my life trying to confront those things that scare me. And if they scare me, I do them. And that's what I do. 
if I'm scared of something, I look out there and I see it and I go, why don't I go do it? And, I, and, and it's all managed risk, obviously, and you, you manage, you try to manage your exposure to the risks and the things that may scare you or may threaten you or may put your life at risk or, you know, that whole spectrum of, of what real fear is and what real fear ain't is a wide stroke of the brush. Um, but I think, you know, I say, you've got to confront your fear. That's growth. That's living. So I, you know. Funny times. <laughs> what, are, what are some of your fears? What are some of your most recent fears? I'm scared of everything, mate. You know what I mean? I'm full of fear, really. And I'm not scared of being. I'm not scared of being scared. Um, when, when I suppose when you're living in that innocence that we talked about as that Whale Beach period in my life as a child, and then in in a like as an as a as a like in a movie, and the thing just goes boom, and the scenes change, and life is different. You know what I mean? As that happens, that's what I live. And when you realise the fragility of life and of this opportunity, you don't take it for granted. You know, I've never been bored a day in my life. I don't know boredom. I don't even understand what it is. I pay, I wouldn't mind a bit of boredom. <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself. I've got lists of stuff I've got to do where I'm always behind. Always. I'm, and I'm always like that chasing the ball because I've got stuff I want to do. In this, in this little go around the around the block, and it's so brief. The time we have here is so brief. So whenever I see people bored or they're um, or they're sad and, and all sorts of things, like, fuck, you don't have long. Oh <laughs> Enjoy because it's going to be over in a sec. Yeah, and this <laughs> there is a we grew up in a society that was what it was by design, not by fault or luck or chance. You know what I mean? The powers that yeah. owned our existences since the day the land was stolen, right, of all, all of it, because when you think in a global sense, at some point no one owned the land and every bit of land was stolen. And as we've civilised as a, as a society, stuff has kind of got dispersed out from royal families that kind of ran and owned, and it's been let out bit by bit to the people. And standards of living have been coming up and, and the middle class has been given a chance to create and people have a life. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's we've been on this road to, to, to sharing and to, to kind of a more even, fairer playing field from a, might I say, not from a very, a, a very, you can't be proud of our history. There's stuff to be proud of, right? And there's obvious human giving and, and sacrifice and all of these wars and, and, and fights for freedom along the way. But um, back in it, the tyranny and the slavery and the racism and the sexism and all the things that people are coming out against now is real. And our history is not something you can look at. Real wonderful beings, the human species. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, and, and it is the human condition. I mean, in every society, in every civilization. You know, there is you know, racism and caste systems and and, um, yeah. and we're not we're not very talk about a short time. We're not very far from being back when that was. And when I was a kid, call it the sixties, I remember what it was like. I remember the racism that Mick Mock would encounter when we walk along the street. I never even looked at the ways I never look at people differently. I don't have a sense of myself better than anyone or different to anyone. We're all the same. Doesn't matter what you look like. How you, I mean, that's back to that animalistic interpretation of self. 
where there's this yeah. opportunity to the fear, the fear of difference. Yeah, I, and, and, you know, that's what I hope out of all this whole thing is that, you know, people, there's talk of awakenings and there's the spotlight being turned on on certain areas of our lives that that seem like they needed the spotlight turned on them. And, um, you know, let's just hope things things can change and we can become a fairer, more inclusive, loving, stoked society recognising this fantastic opportunity. Do you see it as an awakening, though, or merely as a power struggle? I see more power struggle than awakenings. Well, the, the problem for me, the problem for me is that at times I don't have that much faith. You know, at times I go, oh, the humans, oh, the humans. We're, you know, it's like, um, and, and that's what's been great. That's the great thing about travel, isn't it? It's different cultures have different things and give you differently and, and share with you differently. And You know what I mean? And you go, oh. That little part of the world that I grew up in for that bit of time that wasn't so nice and wasn't so caring and wasn't so giving and it's pretty gnarly. That was just a moment in time. Look over here, you know. So there's this, I just feel like there's this wonderful opportunity to just be open about everyone and everything and realise that we're all the same and and that's real and, and we're all made of the same stuff. And the word in the street might be that we're more virus and bacteria than we are human cells. <laughs> so... Being comfortable with the exposure to viruses and that preeminent thing that's in our lives and makes the species grow stronger through the experience and people do lose their lives and that's, you know, never nice. Um, but there's this, there's nature at play too, you know what I mean? And there's the, the humans, the human playing God role that, that, that can get you into trouble and can end up polluting your planet. So you look around and go, oh, what the hell happened? Oh, we never cared about it. We thought it'd just regenerate. We never even actually thought about it. We just threw it all out there. You know, that's kind of where we're at, isn't it? And there's this, you know, you go, when you see the pollution that's out there and now you get on a plane and you see the, the use of single-use plastics coming back into fashion because of a virus. Oh, the fucking plastic thing? And you get on a plane and you ask for a drink of water and they give you a fucking bottle. Yeah, mate, just... Mate. I just, and you go, well, could I feel that? I've got one yeah. of these. Could I feel that? I go, no, sorry, can't. I go, well, we don't touch it. <laughs> but, you know. So there's a lot of lot of things happening out there for the environment as a byproduct of the fear that is in, in existing in, in in parts of the world and community that can't forget, can't forget the poor environment. We can't just forget that, you know, the single-use plastic thing has got to stop. You can't. It's just... It's 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 radical out there. There's a lot of plastic and a lot of rubbish, and we ain't going to be the ones that have to deal with it. And that's what I love about Blast Off, mate. I love the kids and I love giving, and it's because because they are the future. We might not have done such a great job of looking after things, and they may come in as custodians and 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 look at it and go, "Wow, we won't be doing what they did. Let's fix this up." And that's what's going to happen. And we've got to, the sooner that we as adults can assume responsibility and, you know, the, the living in an economy, I thought yeah. it was a community. I thought it was a society. I said, when did it become an economy? Oh, it's an economy. I forgot that's more important than the other bits. You know what I mean? So there's that balance in there that's got to be found to where businesses are responsible for what they're putting out there. That's the bottom line. They're putting so much crap into our environment and making money off it and profiting off it without being responsible for the end product. And that loop's got to be closed. 
And well, the, great, the great thing in, in a capitalist society is the, is the consumer can stop that, that loop. If we all stopped using plastics, no one would use plastics. Very hard, eh? Yeah, it's very fucking hard. I can't buy, stra- I can't buy strawberries because it's always in a plastic punnet or a pair of blueberries. My, my wife will go to Whole Foods and come back and everything's in. I thought it was meant to be healthy. What's everything in the plastic bowl? Because we've got, and now more than ever before, before you could have picked up your cherries and put your things in, you know, whatever. In, but now it's like it's got to be in plastic because it might get germs on it. Like, so there's this whole, yeah, where the balancing things, I don't know, to me, now more than ever, you've got to listen to yourself and you've got to not, you know, there's that whole going out for information. And the sources I see out there, I wouldn't be going to for information. They don't seem that reputable and they seem like they, and it's been one of my niggles with media for a very long time, is that they're, they're servants of the advertiser and the advertiser creates, they're, they're only there if they're comfortable with what you do and if what you do doesn't make them comfy, then you're going to have to tinker. And, and there's that compromise of integrity that comes with the very nature of the thing when it's an advertiser or even if it's not, it's in the hand of the government, then it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a really, you know, well, how, do you, how, do you, how do you find the truth? I've been struggling to find the truth. I'll hear things like the CDC and I'll see a meme or whatever, you know, that says that they've re reevaluated their numbers by 94%. That's a small little error, 94. And there were people <laughs> that died of it, not uh, with it, not of it, mm. um, so it's 6% the actual number. And then you go try and find that. I've been on the CDC website and I've, I've seen – their best case scenario and what they figure the, the chances are in terms of numbers on their website. And when you look at those numbers there on the website, and please, I hope people don't, you know how people get, eh? I'm not doing this because I've got an agenda. I'm not doing this because it's what I think and I care and I've got to fight and argue about it with people. I don't. You know what I mean? You know me. Yeah. You know, I've been trying to shut my mouth for a very long time. <laughs> You caught it for a good time because it's you know when you look at everything that's going on, it's one of them times in life, isn't it? It's extraordinary, and the emotion and all of the stuff that's out there. Just try to breathe and try and stay calm, and you know, hope that people can see the good in each other and not see the bad in each other because you're a part of something that the other side. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the the you know, hopefully. I hope Trump loses the election in November, not because I have any axe to grind with the Republicans, it's purely because it, it may mean that discourse might become a little bit more sensible. Yeah, I don't see that happening either way, but I'm not, I'm not, you know. That's, and again, we're, we're in a place where we don't vote, um, don't have that right, and um, I just watch it and try and not have an opinion. You know what I mean? Because... The minute I've got an opinion, I'm going to see what I need to see to validate my opinion. That's the human condition. Yeah, you're looking for the, so the minute you <laughs> The minute you take a stand and say, this is this, and all of a sudden you're looking for those things to validate this is this, and then people are coming at you with the attack from the other side because you've stood one way or the other, and I just hope people can grow beyond those attacks and let people have an opinion. Let them care. Let, everyone's different. We all think differently. We're different gods, different religions, different upbringings, different everything. And I just, it's all okay, you know. And there's certain things you've got to draw the line on. But with, with most of what's thrown around, 
when people are taking a side, we can get over that. You know, if we can't, then what's the what's the what's the hope of government or the bigger picture doing it? Yeah, true. Hey, for you five, know, the manifestations five, of us. Yeah. Hey, five years ago, um, the wonderful Matt Warshaw, you know Matt, yeah. um, wrote that you were his number one pick for a commentator that we should crowdfund to get you on the on the tour, and he asked you for a comment of of um, you know about uh, about surf commentary during events, and and you you sent him this message. It's, it's beautiful. I'm just going to read it. He said, um, I never get involved in these type of discussions, but can't help myself. My feeling is that the product needs definition. Is it a sport or a free surfing exhibition? The fact that it is a sport as it's designed and defined by the rules, but the commentary makes it seem as if we're just watching free surfing, not a contest. I've never watched a heat and felt as if it's been properly explained how and why someone lost a one. Occasionally a surf will come in and tell you he lost the heat because he misused priority or did something wrong. And you might get some insight into what actually went down. Kelly is great at this. Most commentators, no, most commentators don't like the fact that every heat is actually won by wave selection, the use of priority and the management of the time by strategy. Commentators almost deny the existence of strategy and try and make us believe heats are won by just surfing. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting take on commentary, you know. And uh, then you said that my experience is that heats are less often won by surfing, more often won by strategy, and that's what makes it interesting. So we already know that surfing. It's the rest of that needs to be illuminated. So you are a popular commentator, you know. Um, what do you try and do when you uh, when you got the mic? I try to remember it's not about me. <laughs> That's my primary goal, mate. That's my primary focus because Lord knows, you know, the ego is strong. <laughs> I can be a wanker. And sometimes you just got to keep, I should always go, remember, it's not about you. It's not about you making your point. It's not about you being right or wrong. It's about me. Seeing what I because I don't <laughs> I say this quite far, I don't know much. You know what I mean? When it comes to this there's a whole sort of near on ten year, eight year period that I didn't watch a single heat. I never saw Andy Irons surf a heat against Kelly Slater. I never saw any of that whole thing go down. So uh, uh, hey? Why didn't you watch it? Oh, when I retired from the tour, I didn't really like it very much. None of us did. Think back to when we did it, mate. It wasn't a very loving organism. It was an infrastructure of business, uh, perhaps to sell more T-shirts than it was to create futures for professional surfers. And the environment wasn't was hostile, and it wasn't. It was. It's it, you know. It treated us like product, mate. We we're in and out. And if you weren't in, you were out, mate. And if you said things that they didn't like, you weren't getting anywhere in that thing. And there were some people that stuck their necks out more than others. And when I retired, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was go near a contest or near the ASP. Please, you're killing me. I'm drowning in there. I'm dying in there. And, and you, like, you get out and it's like, oh, nice. Life's great, huh? <laughs> I thought I knew that. You didn't know that, you know. But, but you, you did 15 years and, you know, you, mm-hmm. you won a world title in 88, runner-up 85, third in 87, won the QS in 93. Don't you remember that? Yeah. That and was you, one of the things I was most proud of, I've got to say. Oh, was it? Yeah. At the, you know, I was 30 years old and uh, and I was on the back end of my career. My daughter had just been born. Tamron was born in 93 and she was coming and I was scared, mate. I needed money. I needed to win. I'd had some bad business experiences the first go around and you know, after the world title thing and then into the 90s. I wasn't really liking it. I wasn't enjoying it on there too much. You know what I mean? I was politically active and engaged to the point where it was ruining the experience of being a surfer. 
you know? And so um, why I did that to myself, I don't know. I always get, uh, and, and that's, that's why I try to say what I say to David, utmost respect, and so people feel, feel you and know that you don't. They can, I'm happy for them to be different. Think whatever you want. Um, but so that was a bit of a loop from uh, what he, you know about commentating. But yeah, I just try to, I try to make sure it's not about me. But you know, back to your career, you won 17 contests, and and you were the first to admit you weren't a pots or a current or an hockey, but you did everything you could to minimize luck. That you did yeah. a lot. Of, that you did a lot of theory. Mm. What, what did you do? How did you win? <laughs> You know, you know how it is. You don't know yourself. When you were you, you know what I mean, and you're younger or whatever, you don't, you don't really know yourself, and you don't really have, you don't have confidence. And if you think about it, you know, I would say confidence is literally a choice. It's nothing more than a choice. You can manufacture it through your efforts, which are based on your judgments of what you need to do to achieve that confidence to achieve the goal. It's I've seen absolute rare individuals of life just choose confidence and just have it made. They don't, you know what I mean? They don't. And it's, it's, it's understanding the, that, that, you know, that that's the case and then, you know, choosing it, not, not being fragile about it, you know, and it's not that you're not. I'm confident in myself, mate. You know what I mean? I believe I know myself. I know what I think. And I know, I kind of feel like I know, but when, I'm a kid, when I was a kid on that tour, I didn't know myself very well. I was scared, mate. No one ever told me I would succeed. No one ever said to me, oh, you'll do it, mate. You know, if I'd like a, you know, laugh at you, go, hey, I'll show you. If that's, you know, and then down there, enough people do that, you just go, let's go, mate. Any day, any time, anything. Martin, who? Tom, who I don't care. Let's go. I'm taking you out. I was, I was hungry, mate. No, I didn't have a backup plan. I left school to be a professional surfer. I told him at career guidance, so I'm going to be a world champion surfer. They go, mate, you ain't the smartest tool in the shit. Maybe you should you get a, you know, some kind of trade behind you. I remember you'd be a boiler maker, cabinet maker. Here we go. You're not hearing me. I'm going to be a world champion surfer. I'm right. Don't worry about me. Worry about other kids, mate. It's what I used to kind of be like. I knew what I was doing. And, um, I mean, those Mossman years is a, I don't know what you call it, like as another chapter. <laughs> um, they're fascinating, mate. I learned a lot of stuff and did some stuff I'm not necessarily proud of. But I was creative, I was inventive, and I financed my life from 11 years old. And I've owned my existence and held my freedoms and, and never been a burden to my mum. Never, you know what I mean, caused her grief or made her have to do anything or anything. And and, and that was something that's, that's kind of – it's who you are. That's how you win, long story short. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter whether you, you, know, you paddle to this one, you paddle to that one. Being Becoming a pro surfer is a, it's a personal development course <laughs> for, those, for those of the most fragile nature. You know what I mean? Because we're in there. There's not many people who grow up and are willing to go and lose every day of their life to prove a point, mate. And it weeds them out. People, you know, we go there and we lose all. That's what we do, mate. 
And if you go there and win, no one expects it anyway. They go, ah, oh, he's a good competitor. Shit, sir, I'm a good competitor. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, thanks, guys. Love it. Such a nice community. Um, <laughs> um, so there's those, there's those things you go through to be you. And um, I think I went through, I had some lessons early in life that I was managing people. I've been managing my situations in a conscious fashion for a very long time. What, what, what were some of those early lessons, you know, apart from the death of your father? Um, just, yeah, no, don't take it for granted. You know what I mean? You've got to be, you got to be present and you've got to be living. And I, I look at life as a body of work. When we're gone, it's a body of work that's left behind you. And that's your contribution to your family, to, to your culture, your sport, to your, your world. You know what I mean? That's what you give is that body of work. And I'm conscious about my body of work. When I was a pro surfer, I used to do interviews and say things and behave in ways and just to get a reaction, just to piss them off, just to, you know what I mean? It's nauseous. It's like, and, and, you know, now I'm much, I'm way more conscious about other people's feelings. I'm, I'm way more conscious about other people's cultures and their, and the way they do things, you know? We used to come to countries and just rock in like we own the joint, this just marauding bunch of Viking Australians or something. Or this, you know? And then as it grew, there's, and it was, it was great times, but I feel like I might have been disrespectful quite a lot, mate. You know what I mean? As I reflect, and I kind of go, oh, jeez, there's, you know, there's one of them things, you know? You asked me what I'd learned. You know, the, I, I learned I've kind of got an anger problem. <laughs> I get angry, mate, and the thing snaps and I punch stuff. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I go, you still learn. I thought I was over it, but I'm not over it. And as I, as I kind of reflect on my life, I look at situations and now with that awareness around my own emotional responses to situations, um, I go, oh, that could have been one. Oh, Greg Clough dumping you. That could have been one. Oh, that one with that guy when he kneed you in the nuts and dropped you that night at the board riders preso. That could have been one. You know what I mean? All of a sudden you were thinking all these other people, the bad guys, and you were just getting way of what, you know. But the realities are that you put yourself where you are and you create your your opportunities and it's that, I love that. You know what I mean? I love I love that opportunity to to do some stuff and make some stuff happen and and I look at the young pros of today, and I, I'm sure all my mates and brothers from my generation look at it the same and go, oh, if only we knew what we knew now. You know, you would just, you know, imagine the opportunity for us guys to come together and to have made something at that moment. Uh, Call it the 80s with these amazing characters. It's like a circus with this just wonderful cast that's being dominated by a ringleader who doesn't have a clue, but he's looking at balance sheets. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and to me, that's why I was on that board for 15 years, 10 years. That's why I wanted to do stuff. I was like, let's take this over. Let's run this this way. Let's do that. You know, we conducted the coup, which was the creation of the – the coup was the creation of the Dream Tour, and I know other people talk about the creation of the, you know, the Dream Tour, but the Dream Tour was started by the coup where we sat Graham Cassidy and Peter Burness – um, at the meeting and, and, you know, I look at Graham Cassidy now in retrospect, now what an incredible man he was. You know what I mean? He was outside of, he was outside of that clique that was 
that then took over in his absence because we went in and took those guys out because we wanted to go to good waves. We had the best surfers in the world were riding the worst waves in the world and the sport was dying. Yeah. And there wasn't really any any real movements to change it. So we we had the votes. I lobbied on the other side, got the votes, went to the meeting. No one saw it coming. We, we, we replaced management and the Dream Tour was started. That was it. You know, so I feel like those are the kids today have got that entrepreneurial spirit. You see it in edits, you see it in the creation of brands and events, and and I really like that's why I, I look at the, the the shape of the the surfing part of things. You know, outside of everything else, and it's so good, so good. Connors are sick. Like I think not having them makes you realise they're pretty sick. I do, I, and I like I like having those. I, I have trouble watching ones that don't mean anything. Like the recent events at Stratty and uh, Cabot? Yeah, just ones that I know that don't, because maybe that was just my attitude coming through in me and feeling like I just know that you're different every time you compete. And when there's big stuff on the line, it's it's all in. And you're going there, it's kind of like a holiday kind of. Yeah. Um, when you were talking just before, it reminded me of um, uh, about the 80s when you got beat up by Marines in Japan. Was it Japan? Can you tell me that story? Yeah. Um, well, anger. There you go, mate. So I never really confronted my death, my dad's, my father's death. Um, when we moved to town, you know, I just knuckled up, mate. I just kind of went, let's go. We've got, st- we've got stuff to do here. We're not. No one's looking out anymore. And, we've got a, and, and it was a real, <laughs> you know. The, like I said, the, the Mossman days and the creativity and the way I managed situations there to fund and prosper my future was quite, you know, it's, it's a story for another day. But I remember being here in Hawaii at Turtle Bay and having an argument, I must have been 18, having an argument with Nick Carroll, him telling me that I must hate and me going, hey, I don't know hate. I literally don't hate, I don't know hate, I don't. I don't even know what you're talking about emotionally. And I was serious. Lord, Lord, life teaches you some lessons. <laughs> but, um, um, but I remember arguing about that, that I, didn't, I hadn't experienced hate. So even with my father's death, I was pretty, I don't know, understanding, <laughs> understanding of life and the way it works, you know. Um, so, so, but... That night in Japan, <laughs> it had been a few nights of where, you know, first night 15 of us went in on the, on, the, on the train all together, great times. Second night, there's eight of us. Third night, there's a couple. And um, Rod Kerr and I stayed because and, and, we met some friends and uh, that gentleman came up and started carrying on like, an, um, you know, Pork chop. Yeah, pork chop. Exactly. Well done. And uh, and uh, he said he did. He was, he was a U.S. Marine and his words were, and they rang in my ear, that he would kill his mother and father if they were in the line of duty and he was ordered to. And at the time, I just went, I just, oh, I was so angry, mate. I just couldn't believe what I'd heard. And I was like, mate, you need some help with that 
And I, then I looked at Box. I can't help it. I've got to clock him. I've never punched anyone in my life, mate. I'm not a fighter. You know what I mean? Um, but the anger was there, mate. And the moment was when I just went and just clocked him in the head. And then it was kind of <laughs> the next thing you know, he's mates of. Uh, next, uh, next thing you know, it's just whatever. And I got knocked unconscious, essentially. <laughs> Do you remember much about the fight? Like, so he threw the punch and then did he take it and then. Yeah, no, he took it. He went. He kind of took it and stepped back, and then said, "You're, you're all gone." And started walking off to get his mates. So I went, "Box." And I looked at each other. We're out of here, but quick, quick, into the toilets. And we're in a basement, and the base, the toilet had no window straight out of the toilet. Quick, no, no, out there, straight into them. And I literally got held and beaten unconscious. Lickings, bar, <laughs> lickings, because Lord knows. So that you know, that was again. I look at these experiences in my life, and you're always growing, and you're never, you're never there, you're never perfect. That's the, the surfing metaphor for life is just the most wonderful metaphor of all. You know, you just you, you take your lessons out of the ocean, and apply them onto land, and try and live with that, and you, you know, you're a chance of not being a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, very slight chance. Slight chance, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Hey, talk to me about. Um, I think this is pretty good. Your rivalry with Potts. I mean, I remember years ago I interviewed him for a Surface Journal story. It was a big story, and I, and I talked, spoke to everyone from um, you know Mark Price to my Crookshank and everyone. And um, and Potts was in the car and had a whole bunch of Surfer magazines that coincidentally <laughs> someone given me had you know from the eighties, and he's. Yeah. And he flips to a double page instinct advertisement of you at Pipe, you know, during that remarkable final day in 88. I can't wait to hear this. Yeah, and the 20 point caption just read Barton Lynch, world champ, 1989. And Pipe was just fucking livid. He goes, What the fuck is this? I was the 89 world champion. And this is, you know, 20 years after the fact. Typo. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a typo, yeah, because it's obviously 88 world champion. But for yeah. that story, I interviewed you, and you said you beat him in a couple of pivotal heats early in his career, once in Narrabin and once in Lackanau. And from that point in time, it was well and truly fucking on. Mm. Yeah, he did. He, he, um, at the time, he didn't like getting beaten by me and he didn't think he most probably didn't think he could be. You know what I mean? He, he had that, you know? And it was doubles back. To, I was a wild card in the event at Narrabeen in that one. Little little knee-high lefts, 100, 100 whacks, you know what I mean? Super fun. Um and then France, yeah, and the semis in France. And I, you know, I suppose I never, wouldn't have gone into a heat with Potts going, I know I'm going to beat him. Um, there were people. There were, wasn't he? He was a superhero. No, and he was, and he was incredible. Like, he's incredible, mate. He was so fast. And his story's an absolute ripper too, mate, you know. when you, That's, I suppose, your mateship that you carry after it is just yeah. the best ever, you know. Um and so what, what, what fueled – and Tom Carroll too, right? And what yeah. fueled the rivalry between me and them was Peter Manstead. Remember Peter Manstead? Yeah, the, the mad old manager who calls you up when you're in Newcastle. He was, managed, yeah, he was, he was managing them. And yeah. I, he was managing me, but I saw it early and I got out of there lots of time. I wish you told us earlier. You were too deep, mate. You wouldn't have heard me. So – 
that was that was one of those ones where he fueled that that rage between them and I, and he would tell them, guarantee, tell them lies of things that I said or did or wrote. Tom says to me nowadays, <laughs> you said I did steroids, and then I go, mate, I don't think I ever said that. <laughs> I don't remember, I don't remember ever saying that. I remember other people saying it, and it being around, you know. But I never because he's trying to tell me I said it. And I'm going, I think Peter Manstead might have. You know, and so he was in there driving that division between me and them because the last thing he wanted me to do was succeed because I'd walked away from him and told him to stick it because yeah. um, I didn't like his way. And um, and so and they stayed with him and it was them against me and then Duma joined in with me and it was Duma and me against, you know what I mean? It was like it was, there was some, some strong emotions and some big characters and some, you know, that's our generation had some massive characters and, and no one was going to take a backward step. No one was going to surrender that moment or that opportunity through nicety. <laughs> we, you know, wasn't, there wasn't enough to go around. There was only some people eating. The rest of us were piecing it together, you know. So it was very young and I'm so excited to have been a part of pro surfing in those days. Because there's, like there's, there's a great story where um, Manstead was ringing up in your hotel room in Newcastle and threatening you, and you, and you hung up, called your new manager, Dirk Cook, and said, mate, Manstead's hassling me. And Dirk just goes, well, fuck this, I'm just going to drive up. And he came up and dropped him. Yeah, yeah. He was ringing me, telling me that people were coming to my room, come down to the foyer, I'm here, I go down to the foyer, there's no one there. There were knocks on my door, open it, no one there. <laughs> I was getting terrorised by the lunatic. Um, and uh, and then and so it just I was edgy, obviously. I wasn't feeling good about it. And my manager rang, and he could tell that I was. He was like, "Well, I said, oh, that rubberneck's just giving me just working me, mate." And he just jumped in the car, drove up. I was commentating with Mark Richards on NBN, and um, they come into the into the commentary booth and tap me on the shoulder and go, "You've got to come." To Bad's happened. Something really bad's happened. You got to come. And I was like, "Oh shit, my, my mum's dead too." That was the first thing I thought. My mum's dead too. Oh, well, leaving Ash through. And they go, I walk in there and they're there and he's, they go, oh, you, you managed to just punch out Peter Manstead. And I was like, and? <laughs> the problem is, you know what I mean? 5K each, we got we got fined, me and Potts. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, that's a bit of a hit back in. That's like, a hit back then, mate. Um, but, you know, it was, <laughs> I'm not condoning the situation, but. It was just those were the days, mate. It was it was a different environment, a different world, and and you know there was not there was literally not one parent around, not a single parent, a bunch of kids running around the world. Yeah, it's really a wonderful. You were there in parts. You remember what it was like? Um, it was a, it was a, just a, and then you know to to go to war against people, <laughs> like we all did, and then and then get. That chance, and that's where the pots of my story, you know, we get that chance to, I moved back to where I grew up, which is Whale Beach, which in 93, and Potts is like the king there. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like Simba and I've come home. <laughs> and, um, and, and so we just, you know, in the end, we just surfing together every, we go surfing together every day. Drop the kids at school, meet, go surf, hang out all day, pick the kids up after school, hang out all night and hang kids play and make dinner for the kids. And those we spent, you know, and heaps of times. And they were our kind of darkest in terms of 
financial opportunity in terms of a future. We didn't know our future. We didn't have one. Because you I had both, both of the young kids, you both have retired, pots of pistols money up against the wall. You probably never had any money. And then I remember you telling me you guys became kind of soulmates out of that. Yeah, we both, we both, we both blew our opportunities and trusted the wrong people. And we're just young kids, mate. We had no idea the world we we're stepping into. And he was two years younger than me. And he is, you know, he has the constitution of an absolute ox, mate. Potts is a very, hey, he's a very, very strong individual who can handle enormous amounts of stress, enormous amounts of pressure, enormous amounts of, I don't know, like, um, having to find yourself in the midst of other people's situations, and you know he's he's a he's a strong he's a strong piece of work, and and we got to know each other and and spend all that time together and share our stories and share our past because we didn't really know each other, we just hated each other, you know. <laughs> and then we got to do, you know and we worked together on projects, and you know it was it was really cool, and we you know we became brothers in that sense. And Tom Carroll's the same. Tom and I. You know, we talk a lot and, and we, you know, they're my besties, mate. The guys you're at war with are your best mates. They understand you. They they know what we went through. They know what you went through and they know who you are on the other side of that as a, as a friend or as a brother in a, rela- you know, in a, in a life relationship. And I think all of us feel like that's the thing we got out of that time on tour. The money was, you know, enough enough to buy yourself a house or two most probably if you didn't blow it. Yeah. Um, and, and set that kind of a foundation up for your life. It wasn't like today where – and there weren't people walking around wanting to create companies with you or yeah. wanting to, you know, create commercial opportunities with you. We didn't know Hollywood stars. You know, that came with the momentum generation, that kind of popularity and notoriety of surfing came with those guys, you know. Um, <laughs> ours is, a, is, is a, different, a different thing to that, so – it's amazing. You told me something really, uh, really cool when um, I interviewed you for the pot story. You said, um, I've always felt a bit alone in this world. I'm not a part of a clique or company or a group. There's no one really batting for my team. And in a lot of ways, pots feels like that too. I remember one afternoon and we were having some beers and reflecting on life and he goes, who do I trust? Who do I turn to? Who do I have to share anything with? Well, I've got us myself. And I said, well, you've got me too. Yeah, bruh. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the... That's the that's the spirit of what we lived through, you know. I think that we're all, you know, they were the, we were in the trenches, and it was an experimental time. People didn't know right from wrong, good from bad, what was working, what wouldn't work. It was there was these, you know, they were building a sport that was foundational, it's the sickest stuff ever to me. Yeah, you know, I love the story of Rabbit walking to school dreaming of a tour. Yeah, you know, and those guys almost manifesting that tour into being out of their collective energy and desire to not work. (laughs) (laughs) That's me, mate. When you're on the tour, there was Shane and there was Rabbit, and then you went through all those guys, and then you went through even the Kelly generation. And yeah, you were tired at you know thirty or something. I think Potts was twenty-eight, but Kelly is still there after you know almost thirty years after winning a world title. He's, he's still there. Yeah. How good's that autopilot? Oh, my God. <laughs> Unbelievable, mate. It's so well rehearsed and it's so so ingrained. It's so deep, so structural <laughs> that he almost doesn't need to be there. You know what I mean? Like he's, he being there almost gets in, a way, in, in its way because it's such a 
rude pattern of behavior i can't you know i i i'm constantly astonished by by that part you know the surfing and then looking at where it is the kids are that good the you know the, the, the how's the airs coming out of wake up and stuff oh, like that you, is, oh. it's been the biggest thing i think to performance surfing um possibly in history yeah well and and, and i suppose um you know, I look at jet skis as well. You mm-hmm. go, jet skis, massive, mate. People wouldn't be paddling them ways. You couldn't be out there. They'd still think you couldn't be out there until you were out there on a ski and went, oh, maybe you could, you know? Yeah. Jet skis were massive. And so, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I, the thing I'm stoked most about is that I'm, I'm just on the verge of being young enough to keep learning these things. Yeah. Right? And I remember the first, off the back of the tour and I'd, I came here to the house and um, TB1, the original snowboard trilogy, yeah. TB, TB1, because Mike Hatchett had stayed here because he was friends with Aaron Chang. The, the, the VCR was in the, in the thing and I get to the house and I'm like, what's this? I put it in and I see snowboarding for the first time. And I'm like, holy, by the end of it, I'm on the ground, I'm stretching, I'm going, I'm doing that, what is that, whoa, and I was just tripping on how good snowboarding looked, you know, and then I remember I was at home, I was injured, I was out of the water, and I saw some footage of Jaws came on toe-surfing Jaws on the news, Yeah. right, and I'm kind of, it's in that period where I'm disconnected completely from surfing, Yeah. you know, I, I did eight years I didn't look at a magazine, go to an event, I knew nothing, saw nothing, happily. Fantastic times. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, you must have seen Derek and Laird, though, um, at the front of backyards, though. Yeah, so, well, I remember seeing a vapor trail the first day, right? I remember the first day I saw it out front, seeing the vapor trail coming down and going, oh, my God, there's <laughs> someone on that. And then watching and, and seeing it come through and going, before that news story ended, I was stretching again. You know what I mean? I'm on the ground, I'm stretching, and, and I just – and then I saw foiling, and I was like, God, we've got to learn that. We absolutely have to learn that. You know, and I committed six weeks straight. I was here, and I only foiled for six weeks straight besides three days towing in six weeks. Every other surf was a foil surf to learn it, you know, and if I'm going to get it, we've got to go. And so the fact that those things bring such a thrill to my life, I get that excited, eh? and I just have that much fun. Just being out in the ocean, blatting around, just riding waves, just and that's when you get off the tour, you it actually comes back to you. You're like, oh that's oh, I knew I loved it. You know, <laughs> I knew I enjoyed it. And and you kind of get back get your spirit back. But you know, fifteen on that tour then with the way it was and the people the way they were and the you know, there's all sorts of abuse coming your way from all sorts of directions. Um and uh you know that was that was wasn't like you couldn't be lighthearted in that environment, eh? It's in, it's interesting that you know you've created um, you know Be or Blast Off <clears throat> because amongst all the kids that I know, it's bigger than WSL. It's one thing that you know matters when it comes on the workers and the school holidays, and every kid goes to Wiley or whatever, and they go do and they talk about it. No one talks about you know Hossegor, or no one talks about you know, maybe Pipe a little bit. But um, the, the great thing about the event, I think was all kids are really welcome to it, even if you're a bit of a coup. Yeah. You'd surf a couple of times, yeah. you know. You weren't getting point three of your waves. you just go, oh, yeah, you finished six, but, you know. Yeah. And, and yeah, I know that's, you know, I, I, 
I have strong opinions and I think I know I knew back then when I was looking at, at events that kid for kids, I knew they were wrong. 3.79, 2.83, 7.54, 9.35. So that's all you hear for 20 minutes, right? Is them reading out numbers. And then there's this two-wave total of 7.38. And then came six, and there's this bombardment numbers. The parents will stand around going, What do we tell them? What do you do wrong? What do you do right? And they're trying to understand the math to try and turn it into. I was like, it's just not how you do it, mate. You don't score rides, you coach them. And you tell them what they're doing right and wrong. And you get great people who, who are respected. And I want to, after this, I've got to share, this is a segue into something I wanted to share with you and, and get your opinion on. Yeah. Um, and Because I've had strong opinions about the judging, right? Um, and and it's a, not a personal thing in any way. And I love all that. I'm friends with all those blokes, you know what I mean? And it's nothing to do with them personally. But what are your chances of getting five people to agree? It's very small. Yeah, that's what they say, right? Yeah. Try and get five people to agree on anything. Yeah. You, your, your system is kind of the pre- the confidence in the system is around uniformity to the scores. So as as your natural instinct, um, I think in my mind back then, be going, I think they're going seven five. You know, and you go seven. Oh, yeah, we got it. Not yeah, we look good. If you're way up or way down or not keeping that thing uniform so the presentation of the interpretation is clean of, of, of controversy, um, and so you get to this point where it's a very difficult system. It doesn't matter who you got working in that system. It's a tough system mm. to work in, and they, they do a great job given that they're set up to fail by the nature of the system, in my humble opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so... Back to the old days, five judges to nil, four judges to one, three judges to two. You could call it an eight, I could call it a four. We could have different best waves. We could have completely different looking sheets for a reason of our own interpretation of their performances, which is what you want. You want to encourage the interpretation of an expert, right? And when I say expert, I ain't good enough to judge. Right, flat out. No, and I don't. I that, no, that's less than the pool if you're not expert enough to judge. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. I'm not good enough to judge, mate. No, you need people that know, mate. And 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 to me, to me, I think you most probably only need three of them, right? And it should be the best people your money can buy. And if I'm going to pipeline, my panel is going to be C.J. Hobgood, Shane Dorian, and. Joel Parkinson, Joel Parkinson yeah. right? And I want to turn, I, I believe this is the way it should be because the experts should pass on what is good surfing. It should be passed on by elders. And it should be elders that aren't too elderly but are current <laughs> enough to interpret, <laughs> me included. You know what I mean? So I feel like, and then they are, right, they're your, they're your entertainment. Your three judges, Ronnie, Ron, say Ron Dog and I are there and we're going to look and the score comes in and there's a difference from an eight or a different interpretation of the best two rides. Whatever the interpretation is, is good because it's your entertainment. And you go to your judges and we go up to Shano now and just see why he went down on that four and more. So you go to Shane and Shane's like, yeah, you know, when he came off that bottom and he caught that little bit of an edge, I just, at that point, it lost me. I wasn't there with it. And then on the one behind it, in fact, and you get the explanation from the judge and you're bringing the best in the business in to illuminate what it is you're judging. And then you've got 
but you know, you got three judges to one, three nil or two one. And 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 I've I, I've said, <laughs> let me fix the judging. Promise you, I'll fix it. Let me fix it. Yeah, because I feel like I feel like so much of what WSL done has been amazing for the sport, and the fact that we take leading roles in equal pay for women, the fact that the the respect that WSL shows for the surfers is is it's I can't believe it at times. I sit there and scratch my head and go, "Wow, really? You you, you even care what they thought about that? You know what I mean? Where I don't care what we thought. We weren't even asked." You know what I mean? Um, so there's that there's that that opportunity there, you know, and to 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 elevate that part of your entertainment and that part of your decision making. And I, I come off it from blast off because when I said I wasn't going to score rides, and like, you can't do that. I go, yeah, we're just going to watch them and tell them. That's what you do at the beach. You know what I mean? You watch yes. people surf and you get a feeling for where it went, and you know. So I feel like there's possibilities to to create a, a way of judging our sport that really that really would change the presentation of the sport. And instead of them being people that are poor buggers, <laughs> tough job, eh? When the scores come in, the controversy goes and, you know, you wouldn't, you go, you wouldn't wish it on your best mate, you know what I mean? It's like it's a tough gig and those people are, they're heartful and they love surfing and that's why they're there. Um, but I feel like they're kind of, they're not a part of the broadcast. They're just there to get that decision done um, and then kind of get on with the entertainment. But I think bringing them into the entertainment, especially if they're articulate elders and leaders of the sport, um, would just be such a credible move in terms of, you know. And they get, and they get, and they get introduced, you know, like at a UFC fight, they introduce the judges or a boxing match, they'll introduce the judges. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, so I think there's all sorts of opportunities out there, mate. And that's, I do, I've been trying to shut up, but I knew I was just going to lose it when I spoke to you, eh? Got me at the perfect time. Three three weeks into forms of quarantine. (laughs) Rudy watched two episodes of Emily in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what what advice do you give to kids at your Blast Off contest? Because kids would probably, you know. So, so every every video that comes in of yeah. the 250 we've got, I coach. Oh, really? So in the chat, yeah, yeah. On, on, so there's their page, like their videos there, and you go to, there's 20 on a page, and there's 13, 14 pages now, and you go there and the 10 are there, and you click on the video, brings it up, and then there's a little chat room feature just on the side. So I, I go into every single video that comes in and I give, them, I give them some coach and I tell them what I see, what I like, what, I, what we think they could work on. And I've got another coach who works with me in there, a coach who worked with me, Akko, through 87 and, and 92, he worked with me. And so he and I have been working together, so I brought him in there. And uh, Kaius King was in there the other day and commenting on the kids' videos and stuff. And I was talking to Thomas today, this morning, Carol, and he, I was like, can you go in there and just – just let them know, you know, we love them. Let them know you're there and drop, you know. And that's it's, it's a good incentive to get your entry in. So for people that don't know that Blast Off is, is virtual this year on, on video. And um, but, but what, what an incentive to have, um, you know, Barton Lynch, Tom Carroll, Kai's King, comment on your um, little wax. Yeah. And, and so then, and then we got at the end of it all. So we've been doing, 
you know, we do kids who bring the stoke and just kids who put smiles on our face. We give stuff away every day of the six weeks, right? Yeah. Every single day we give away, we're giving away, you know, 20, 20, 30 packs to kids so far. Um, and, uh, and then we've got some big prizes that we haven't really talked too much about. There was something I was working towards that isn't going to happen in time, but there's a project I'm involved in that we'll be announcing in about six months maybe five, six months' time that I think is <laughs> could be super amazing. And I, we had we tried to time together, but it didn't work. But we got a boat trip to the Maldives. Oh, wow. So what I've done is so what I've done is I've got a panel of Jack Robbo, Eli Hanneman, Vahini Fierro, Mahina Maeda, and Kais King. Yeah. And me, and me. So that's our six man panel six person panel. Yeah. And um we're gonna we're gonna do a show, and and make the announcements in the show. Look through the finalists, make our decisions, throw them around between us, come to our decisions, and uh, make a little show at the end of it out of that. But our experts' choice, which they we will decide, um, got two spots to come on a boat. Our coaching trip to the Maldives. Yeah. On the boat charter, coaching trip to the Maldives, and then for the public vote, we were thinking for. Boy and girl of the public vote uh, get to go to the Surf Lakes facility in Yapoon. Oh, nice. Like, you're, you're yeah, yeah. That's been one of the hard parts about not going home too is seeing the footage and knowing that and then seeing the winter that was had down there too. It's like... Oh, crazy. <sighs> start to take yeah, it looked great. It looked so good. You still got your house in um, No, we sold that about three years ago. Okay. And... You know, that was – if what has happened now happened back when I had two mortgages, I would have been in an awful – I would have had another – you know, you were talking about it, but having a heart attack, having yeah. had a heart attack, you know. Did you and have a heart then, attack? Yeah, I had a heart attack uh, five and a half years ago on Australia Day. What happened? Um, I was surfing in a liar, one of those pieces of wood, with, uh, with, with my daughter Tamron, and at Palmy, I just got this weird tingle down my arm. I was like, that's odd, pins and needly odd thing, and it went away. Didn't even think about it. And we went home, and that arm, I was sitting on the couch doing some work, and it came back. And then it started the whole arm. And then I, then my chest a bit, and it was my circumflex artery, which comes around around the side and down into here. Yeah. Um, and so um, it only came across. I thought I'd, I thought I'd pinched a nerve. I was on the ground rolling on balls, massaging away not facing the reality and then my wife was breastfeeding lion he was six months old and it was kind of i got to live my worst nightmare that's why i didn't want to have him because my dad died i'm 50 i don't know how much longer i'm going to be around i'm scared don't make me go through this and then all of a sudden you're you know you know you're having a heart attack and you oh, we jump in the car i go in the bedroom fall on the bed and holly looks at me and goes oh you don't look good and i know we jumped in the car and i go from my kid's six months old losing it. So I'd go from, it's okay, mate. It's okay, little plays, little tickles. It's okay, you'll be right. <gasps> it's okay, little mate. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. You know, and then it was quite a, you know, and in the hospital yeah. and you're having a heart attack. Hey? What were you feeling? This incredible crushing pain? No, you know, it was um, just, I got clammy sweaty palms and just felt like I was going to black out, like I was going to pass out. Um, the pain the pain itself and stuff, you know, like the elephant on your chest or those things, it wasn't any of that that I felt, you know. And then you 
But so, you know, once a week. I've got low blood pressure now since that. I've never had high blood pressure, but now I've kind of had low blood pressure a bit. And so I'll get up and be like, whoa, 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 dizzy, dizzy, hold on, hold on, I like this. Or I'll be sitting and I'll move. And, and when it comes into what is these two fingers, it's your, I can't remember what my wife said it was, your whatever nerve, right? And my arm will go all pins and needly. I'll be like, what's that? And then being these two, I go, no, no, it's that nerve, okay. All right. And so, you know, um, at different points, I have moments where I feel things because I'm a little bit sensitive about it, perhaps. And it just, it's just radical, you know, that you, so you asked me earlier, you know, what you're scared of. Where do you start? I'm not, you know, one thing I'm not scared of is dying, honestly. And I feel like the way we, one of the flaws in our, our upbringing is the way we are brought up to deal with death. It don't have to be terrible. It don't have to be the worst thing in the world. It don't have to be this absolute, you know, we could be brought up to, to where we understand the consequences and we're emotionally impacted by it, of course, but it can be a celebration. He got a chance. He got, he got 20 years. Yes. Good job, mate. You know, whatever it is, there's a different way to look at everything. And, and given the time we're in, maybe it's not a bad time to start looking at things, thinking about it because – that's, you know, she's a good opportunity, mate. Life is wonderful and we've got – and even, you know, for the people in the worst situations of all, they're the people, you know, create an even playing field or a, a, an even opportunity to exist utilising the resources of the planet that considers all and actually doesn't consider the business as the backbone of it and looked at it and went, you know what, we want to do as much, as little work as we possibly can for our community, for our society, for the structure of what we live, and we want as many days to ourselves as we want, and we think the 5-2 was just an evolved form of slavery, which is exactly what it was, what it is. Yeah. We, the work, the workplace today is an evolved form of slavery. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, stock, it's yeah. a stock exchange, yeah. an advanced form of slavery, you know? So... Um, yeah, don't get me started again. I just start myself, don't I? <laughs> you don't even have to say anything. I just start put burying myself again. Amazing. Hey, but before you before you surf, and you're a butterfly collector, and um, do you think hanging up the net for the surfboard was, <laughs> was it um, was the etymology's great loss? And do you ever miss a warm summer morning? And they're scooping up the creatures. Scooping up. You know what? Um, yeah, it's a funny one, eh? I used to, I had quite the collection and we used to breed them in, in, in they'll make little the garbage bins and fly screen and metal and make little, and go get the, the, uh, the little, what do you call those things? Cocoons? No, what are they? Uh, what are they? Chrysalis. 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 And put them in the thing and, you know, it was so, it was, I don't know where it came from. I had quite the collection, pin boarded, you know, <laughs> end of the pin board. Um, and they were beautiful. Um I don't know where they are. They're one of the things I never kept through the, you know, the crazy journey of life. But um, I think I was surfing at the same time and uh, soccer is surfing and butterflies and then surfing won the, won the deal. I think we all won at that. That you stay with the surfing and stop killing butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's another one. The way animals were looked at when I grew up was a little more as a tool than as a living organism creature that may actually have something you need to consider or respect. 
we you know just, what I mean? Just, just like kill them all and industrially farm them. And it was a different, you know, and I'm so so happy to see those. There've been some big changes, and like we said, we're not very far from a very very primitive place in history. That if you remember the short time we've since we have evolved to this wonderful standard quality of living in some places. Um, you know, we're not we're not that fr- we're pretty fresh from the cave, and some of the stuff we did and have done, and to get to where we are, there's a lot of it. You know, there's a lot to be proud of, and a lot that you need to not pretend didn't happen, like Australian history they taught us at school. Yeah, it's extraordinary we had we didn't get taught, huh? Right, right. What kind of people are you looking after? You know, where, you, where was your heart? You know what I mean? Where was your? Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of it's one of those things, you know. And it's but also you can't, get too, um, you can't get too down on collective guilt. Otherwise, we'd still be um, down on the Japanese for World War Two and the Germans. And- well, that's why we just need to, you know, just need to elevate that respect for each other, and for differences of opinions. And the the collective diversity of mankind is the beauty of it. That's what we want. Don't go sterilizing us all into one government, one. You know what I mean? The loss of your currency into a, call it the euro or whatever, it's the first step in, a, in, in in losing yourself to something bigger than you. And my political sort of persuasion's always been about going the other way, going back to fewer and fewer people and making responsibilities at ground zero for yourselves as a collective community of, you know, there's, there's all sorts of of what, that's one of the things that, that bothers me is that I don't know that I've ever heard anyone discuss social architecture. I've never heard anyone. I feel like there should be enormous amounts of money and expertise and smart minds put to work on figuring the best way to utilise the resources for all of us to have a great freaking time. That's the opportunity. You don't want to work forever so you can put plastic and, and pollution and stuff to this, you know what I mean? There's There's... There's better things to do with your life and work and people need to engage with themselves and their outdoors and their environments and get in, get in, in life and live and the thing will just start bubbling, cooking along, you know. <laughs> You're amazing. Thanks, Martin. Pleasure, mate. My pleasure. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube